This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Commercial with a state podcast. Welcome back to the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wright. And I'm your other host, at least for the time being, Matt Scalina. And we are doing our best to stay as cool as possible. And not not in the trendy sense. Just yeah. <laughs> try not to die. I don't actually think it's trendy to say cool anymore, actually. No? Is, is, that, is that what you kids say? You guys have changed it up now? <laughs> <laughs> who, who do we got on the show today, Corey? We have Thomas Wachowski, an appraiser from Campbell and Pound Commercial. And he breaks down what are red flags to be careful of. What is the perfect commercial property to purchase from an appraisal standpoint? He talks about you mean what an appraisal is and who it's there to benefit. How do the banks look at it? How do they look at it? Amazing inside knowledge. And also guys that are on the forefront of what's happening out there in the purchasing and the leasing side. I was really excited about this conversation in large part because there's so much to think about in terms of due diligence. But yeah. then because he's out appraising properties, different types of properties in the Metro Vancouver area all day, day in, day out. Yeah. He has a lot of thoughts on on where the investments are. Well, he's seeing trends, right? Like he sees who's buying what and where. And, and you know, I mean, he's ahead of the curve when it comes to that. A lot of appraisers are on that position there. So to be able to open up his mind and ask him kind of, hey, what are you seeing without saying things he can't say? Yeah. Great interview. Yeah. Great no, interview. It was, it was a great, great talk. So stay tuned for that, for sure. Before we get to that though, Corey, you have air conditioning? I was fortunate enough to have air conditioning. <laughs> I kind of I kind of hate saying it, but my house was so cold, I was thinking of charging cover <laughs> yesterday for people to put a sign on the street there. But yeah, no, we were pretty fortunate we have air conditioning. Although I will say, when it's like 40 degrees outside, as hard as that air conditioner is working, it's doing its darnest, but it's still not cold. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I, I don't have air conditioning, so world's smallest violin for you there, Corey. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we should cut to our talk with Thomas Wykowski. This podcast is presented by Impact Commercial. Impact Commercial. John, Allen, the team over there are fantastic. They've been, all been on the show. They have, yeah. Friends of the show. Great guys. Wealth of experience. They can help with all your commercial financing needs. Whether it's owner-occupiers, land development funds, commercial investments, or multifamily, these guys got you covered. And they recently obtained their CMHC correspondent lender status. So for all your commercial lending needs, visit them at impactcommercial.ca. That's impactcommercial.ca. Okay, so we're here with Thomas Wykowski from Campbell and Pound Commercial. He's a consultant and appraiser. Thank you so much, Thomas, for taking the time with us today. Yeah, hi to everybody listening and pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Thomas. Maybe can we start, Thomas, with you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. I was born. Uh, in Ottawa, I moved to Calgary as a young kid, and uh, just after the '88 Olympics, my parents moved us to the Lower Mainland, and we've been here ever since. I went to high school in Vancouver College, and following that, I went to University of British Columbia, and I did an economics degree. Um, after that, I enrolled in the curriculum through the Appraisal Institute of Canada, and. I've been in the business of commercial real estate consulting and appraisal for more than 15 years and have been working with Campbell and Pound Commercial for that uh, entire period. And are you still on the tools as they speak? Like, are you out looking at sites and, and actually doing appraisal? Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm continuing to kind of work on files actively and there's no way around that part of it. Right. And uh, it's probably what, what I find interesting about it because just by my nature, and probably most appraisers are kind of analytical people just in general. Well, that was going to be my next question, Thomas. Uh, just thinking about, you know, we're all in real estate, so I know a, a lot of 
appraisers. And I know people that were assistants that decided to go into that area. But it's not one of those things like a high school students talking about, I want to be an appraiser when I grow up. Like, why the appraising business? How did you get into it and interested? Yeah, you know, to be honest, I fell into it with kind of a random a random road, you can say. I was working at a, a bank in the property insurance division, and I had a friend who was working with Campbell and Pound doing residential appraisals. And I kind of looked at his lifestyle and his freedom and flexibility as a as a younger person, and I was uh, becoming increasingly jealous of that. You know, dealing with the very rigid structure of a bank, and I basically took a leap of faith and been there ever since. Fantastic. We said to you before we went live that it would be a basic conversation. This is probably the most basics of all the questions and most of the basic ones will come from me and Corey will ask the more sophisticated questions. But maybe just to start, what is the goal of an appraisal? So I think the goal of an appraisal is really to provide an unbiased, over-the-fence take of a particular question that you are trying to resolve. And most often that's going to be a a point in time valuation. And so you have a lot of times parties to a transaction if you're talking about a pending deal. And everybody in that transaction is essentially a biased party, if you will. So they have motivations, they have a, a financial stake in the outcome. The appraiser is really supposed to be providing that unadulterated over-the-fence look to give the end user some reasonable assurance that the structure and the value of the deal is in conformance with what they are expecting or what is being represented by all of the other parties who are in the deal, if that makes sense. So when you're you're valuing a property, you're sort of providing an opinion on the contract, and then ideally that opinion is derived and left for the lender to make a decision based on the report that you've provided. Maybe not so much if the contract price is sort of fair market value, for lack of better words. Yeah, absolutely. So if we're talking about a lot of appraisal assignments where there's actually a pending deal or an accepted offer, and that's most of the financing appraisals that we wind up dealing with, we get a call actually after there's been an accepted offer. And so in that context, you essentially have a market value pending transaction. So the appraiser is not going to come in and try to give an opinion that necessarily deviates substantially from what is occurring. They are primarily going to be reviewing the market evidence and also the terms of the contract that's pending to essentially give some assurance that It is, in fact, a market value transaction. I mean, the appraiser is essentially confirming what the market has already suggested is happening in that pending contract. So, Thomas, I work on the residential side, and I know I get asked this question all the time when it comes to appraisals. Are you working from the agreed upon purchase price and kind of using that context? Or are you often going into a property devoid of any context in terms of what the agreed upon price is and trying to establish value without that information? How does it work that way? Sure. So part of the requirements that are outlined in the Canadian Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice, QSPAP, which is essentially the governing document through the Appraisal Institute of Canada, is that the appraiser must comment and essentially give their opinion of any pending activity on the subject property, as well as comment on any activity that has been happening on the subject property in the three years preceding the effective date. So reviewing the terms of the contract is absolutely part of the appraisal process in terms of a a pending deal. Having said that, there are circumstances where you have parties to the transaction that simply want to have a completely unbiased view of what the property is worth. Most times, those people are not necessarily trying to achieve mortgage financing. They are getting an appraisal for their own purposes prior to removing some other subjects. So I've done it both ways, but most often we are reviewing the contract pending. 
And do you work all throughout the Lower Mainland then? My office works essentially from about Chilliwack all the way up to Whistler. And occasionally we do go into the interior, but most often it, it becomes difficult to kind of maintain your databases and your experience in those areas that you're not actively working in. So typically we're sticking from, from kind of Chilliwack to Whistler. Right. Because it's interesting, uh, again, on the residential side, and I'll, I, I feel like I'm uh, monopolizing the questions here, so I'll let Court jump in in a minute. But, you know, we work primarily in Vancouver. And one thing that strikes me about at least appraisals on the residential side is, you know, I'll meet somebody that's looking at a condo in Yaletown and they just came from Chilliwack and then they're headed to, you know, back to Langley. And it's kind of, I always wonder about that kind of finger on the pulse of the very local market conditions. How do you stay on top of the local markets? Yeah, I mean, with commercial appraisal, it is more difficult than in residential appraisal to necessarily specialize in a in a very kind of constrained geographic area or a certain property type, just because the number of properties, the number of deals, the number of engagements is so much smaller than residential. Right. I, I think it's definitely important, though, to establish with whoever you're dealing with that they do have experience and familiarity with with the property in question. But one of the aspects of the educational curriculum through the Appraisal Institute is that you're essentially developing a methodology and a way of thinking that kind of allows you to evaluate a pretty wide scope of potential real estate problems or questions. Having said that, you know, after a number of years of working in all of the different areas, it actually is not as difficult as people may think for somebody who works in that profession exclusively to kind of keep their finger on the pulse, even though they might be zipping from one type of property in one area to another. That makes sense. So Thomas, walk me through the process and the methods that are used. I show up I call you and say, hey, we got this offer under contract here. We need an appraisal. You're on the vendor's approved list. I'm going to email you over the contract for $15 million. Walk me through the steps. You get the contract now. What methods do you have to consider? What is this, the process that you go through now from the time you potentially get that phone call to delivering that report? And what type of timelines is that? Because I think it's a lot more complex maybe than, say, a typical residential type appraisal. Sure. Like, I mean, every property is unique. Every engagement is unique. But in general, the process works with a letter of engagement as a starting point. So that kind of outlines the expectations for the assignment, what you're expecting to do, what you're anticipating the costs are going to be, how long you think it's going to be until you deliver the final product. And you're also specifying what you are understanding the intended use of that report to be. So for example, if somebody kind of approaches you under the pretense of a straightforward mortgage financing appraisal, that report should not be then used in the context of a litigation if they're being divorced from their significant other. Okay, so from the get-go, you are defining exactly what is happening, how long it's going to take, and what the costs are going to be. From there, the next step is to essentially coordinate a property viewing. So you will make arrangements with either the owner or the vendor or the broker involved. You do a site inspection, which is absolutely the minority component of the entire exercise. So sometimes people are scratching their head wondering why you were only walking around here for 30 or 40 minutes in the context of how much you're charging. But essentially, <laughs> essentially all, all of the work is really happening after the fact. I mean, I wish I could just drive around and take pictures and do the, the meet and greet and, and talk to people and look at properties all day. But the reality is uh, probably 95% of the time involved sitting in front of spreadsheets and reviewing market evidence and kind of going through that process. In terms of a timeline, I would say anywhere from five to 10 business days would be a fairly typical timeline for delivery of finished commercial appraisal products. Of course, very simple office strata units or industrial strata units can be done 
more quickly if volumes permit and uh, larger engagements I've seen take upwards of three, four, five months for large portfolio assignments. How does the appraisal process differ on the type of asset class you're looking at? So if you're looking at industrial versus multifamily versus, you know, office space, can you talk a little bit about how the process differs? Sure. I mean, I think the process is going to be essentially very similar. It's the nuances of the actual analysis that are going to be different. So each type of property has its own quirks, if you will. So like if you compare a strata office unit to a strata industrial unit, the process and the report is going to look almost exactly the same. The only difference being the market evidence pertains to each of those respective assets. When you start looking at Uh, special use properties, much larger properties, multi-tenant properties, you then might start incorporating some treatments that you don't normally apply to simpler, smaller properties. So if you think about, you know, the previous example of a, a strata industrial unit, you are going to be looking at essentially two approaches to value in that report. The first approach is always going to be a direct comparison approach where you're evaluating market sales of similar properties and then reconciling a valuation on the basis of usually of a dollars per square foot. And then you're going to provide an income approach. So the income approach is essentially reviewing either the lease structures in place or estimating a potential market rental rate that could apply to that property, looking for cap rate support in the market and giving a second independent estimate of value in addition to the direct comparison approach. So you actually have two separate approaches inside the same appraisal report, and they theoretically should be the same if you're looking at the same property. But of course, there's always slight variance between those two approaches, and you are going to reconcile your final value estimate as a function of looking at those two approaches and then deciding which one is more reliable or which one you might want to lean on more if you don't want to split the difference down the middle. If you're looking at a much more complicated property, so for example, instead of a strata office unit, you're looking at an office building. And instead of one tenancy, you're looking at 30 tenancies. In that case, you might look at something like a discounted cash flow approach because it's almost impossible to kind of pick a a snapshot in time of what that income is today and then capitalize it in perpetuity and say, this is what the property is worth. All of those tendencies will have different escalations, different terms, and it's, it's essentially a much more complicated exercise. So you wind up incorporating a more abstract analysis into the appraisal report, which makes sense the more complicated the property and more complicated the number of tenancies, the more complicated the analysis that you need to do to to kind of square everything away in the context of a report. So knowing that, how do you look at a building? Say I'm going to buy a building and maybe it's 50% vacant or maybe it's 100% vacant for that matter. How do you value that or stabilize that from an appraisal perspective? And then to go one step further, if I buy a building and I'm going to say renovate the building reposition it because I think there's much greater rents out there than what the current tenants are paying or the vacant building offers. How do you guys look at that? Like how, what type of appraisal methods and how, what type of reports would be produced that I can go to my bank and say, it's worth X today, but I know through my renovations and my repositionings, I can get it to Y. Sure. And that's actually a pretty common framework for appraisals. And you would essentially be giving two scenarios of valuation. The first scenario might be the as-is value. What was this property basically the day that somebody went in and had a look? But you can also, in the context of that same report, under some specific extraordinary limiting conditions and hypothetical frameworks, give this estimate of potential value if a series of assumptions are Realize. So those assumptions might be defined scope of renovation, updating. Maybe you're taking 
a building that accommodates one tenancy that's month to month and you're actually going to demise it and it's going to be three lovely brand new leases at full market rates. It's pretty straightforward to actually give that hypothetical value in the same report. Of course, the reader has to understand that none of these things have happened yet. Yeah, right. Right. So that's probably the most important part of structuring those appraisals is that the end user must very clearly understand what the scenario is that they are dealing with. And they then make a decision as to whether they are assuming a risk or or whether they're going to kind of revise their terms or I mean that's you know the financing and the banking side yeah uh, which which is not not appraisal but in those scenarios the best thing that you can do in terms of dealing with your appraiser or consultant is to provide as much information as you can so I can't tell you how many times that you know you're I've been speaking to someone and they're talking about they want to have a, an as if 100% complete value, but then you ask for a budget and specifications and drawings and they don't have them ready. And somehow a lot of people think that you can tell them what something is going to be worth when they don't know exactly what they're going to do yet. So that seems pretty intuitive that that's not possible, but it seems to happen on a regular basis anyway. So if you're planning on a value add kind of deal, then really the most important thing you can do is have very clear and concise information in advance of trying to get something like an appraisal report. So when we're looking at those future values or hypothetical scenarios, how much influence does it have if I offer you a trip for two to Vegas? <laughs> I was going to say, I was thinking numbers, of Starbucks card. To get those numbers <laughs> up there. And, and I don't know. I got to get, get my vaccine passport uh, out before we're going anywhere. <laughs> does, uh, you know, just thinking about the kind of hypothetical considerations that it sounds like are quite common in, in your business, is that how you evaluate pre-sale? Because, you know, commercial pre-sale is a hot market right now. Is that how you're establishing the value there or is it through comparisons? Yeah, you're, you're, you're essentially looking at a lot of times the contract that's pending, of course, but then the developer's proposed specifications, their disclosure statements, and you're giving an estimate of value as if all of those things that are outlined in the contract are complete as of the day of appraisal. So a lot of times you'll show up to a construction site and things are halfway done. You're essentially making a reference of generally how far along that project is. And then you're giving that estimate. If this was finished today, the day that I'm here, what would it have been worth? Mm. You know, just just thinking about, you know, uh, and it sounds like the site visits are a lot longer than in the residential world at 40 minutes. I think it's four to five minutes usually with uh, condos downtown at least. But you're through a lot of different commercial properties. Are there some red flags that you see that maybe, I guess it's not your job to disclose, but are there certain things that when you walk into a property, you're like, oh, this is fantastic. This is something really great for the buyer and other things that are immediate alarm bells go off? Yeah. So for example, I can tell you that I pulled up to a Strata retail property once and saw that the going concern was actually a brothel. Uh, That would be probably a red flag that the (laughs) bank was certainly pleased to hear about. Matt looks really nervous right now. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's actually a true story where the, the banker had absolutely no idea. And uh, neither did I. So that that engagement did not proceed. But in terms of red flags, I mean, there there can be so many things that tip you off. And over the years, you kind of, you get a feel for something funny going on before you even go to the property. I mean, that's my experience anyways. Just sometimes when people are, are describing an engagement and what they're trying to do, it's too specific for an average user to be discussing things in those terms. And so right away, you're kind of examining things more closely. And probably the most common thing that you see are contracts, either leases or pending purchase contracts that are simply not arm's length. And those can be very difficult to kind of uncover. And of course, like it's not uh, 
part of the appraisal process to be kind of like a forensic auditor and uh, digging into things on those levels. But when you get a feeling that something is a little bit funny, a lot of times you start digging more carefully through the market evidence. And through that process, sometimes you do wind up turning over something that looks a little bit strange in terms of what that property is described as and what you think it actually is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just thinking about your your role in a transaction, I guess and it, it, this leads into costs. But so if I'm a buyer, I'm paying for the appraisal, right? But it sounds like at the end of the day, your obligation is is to the lender. Well, I mean, so the the obligation is to the client. So in commercial, you're going to see overwhelmingly because of the cost of a commercial appraisal, it's always the borrower who winds up paying for it or almost always. And so they are named as the client. However, the intended user of the appraisal report will be the bank. So in addition to the client being an intended user, you will name that bank specifically as an intended user of the report. However, they are not the client. They don't have control over the appraisal process per se. So they cannot cancel the engagement. They cannot tell you to revise the engagement. All of those instructions must come from the client, even though it might be the intended user who tells the client what they need and then the client kind of relays that information, but it is an important distinction. So my offer for that trip for two to Vegas then as the client to get those numbers up, if that's a direction that the client's giving, does the appraiser have to follow that? <laughs> asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah, asking for a friend. <laughs> asking for a friend. That's, that's one of those hypothetical appraisals, hypothetical questions. So Hypothetically, that sounds great. So how does it work if I buy a pre-sale, say I buy an industrial unit or maybe an office unit, a strata office unit, and it's maybe two or three years out? What type of value does the appraiser look at if let's just take a hypothetical it's a 10-story office building all the strata lots will be delivered as shells they're all sold on a sort of a per square foot basis three years earlier if the market takes a dramatic run up and market value for that strata lot might be let's just say double than when you bought it when you guys are looking at the appraisal process do you take into consideration that contract that was three years old when you're uh, yeah, absolutely. At? Absolutely. So typically what you're going to see is the appraisal process being initiated nearer to the closing date. And that's essentially a function of most lenders' policies. They're, they're simply not going to accept an appraisal that's two years old. So even if you have, you know, you sign a contract, uh, the property is basically a a vacant piece of dirt. They haven't even started anything yet. And it could be three years until they actually are delivering. In that case, if you get an appraisal, you can definitely get the hypothetical value of that proposed 18th floor panoramic, you know, view office unit. But it's almost impossible to imagine that a lender will accept that original opinion when it comes time to fund the deal two or three years later, you're going to wind up having to either update that appraisal or commission an entirely new appraisal. So really don't see that exact circumstance very often in terms of a multiple year lead time. Mm-hmm. Or if you do, it, it has regular updates kind of built into it. Right, right. You know, I'm just thinking here, Thomas, you know, you've been in the business for at least 15 years by the sounds of things. You're Pounding the pavement day in and day out. It might be too personal a question to say, are you an investor in commercial real estate? But let's just say, if you were buying right now, in terms of markets and asset classes from what you're seeing on the ground, what would you be looking at? Well, you know, the most astonishing gains that I've seen have, in every example, been land. And so if you think about it, I mean, that really gives you kind of maximum torque in terms of appreciation. You have no aspect of 
a building that's depreciating, you have no tenancies, et cetera. Of course, you usually have no cash flow either. But that is really the area where it's been really impressive to see just how far values have come. And of course, I'm thinking most obviously about industrial land and even industrial land leasing, which for so many years was kind of stuck in the mud. Lease rates weren't moving. It seemed like there weren't even very many properties that were being leased. And suddenly it actually has ratcheted higher so quickly and so dramatically that when you're looking backwards in the rearview mirror, of course, you're you're kicking yourself wondering how you possibly could have missed the boat on that 4 million property that is now worth 20 when they bought it six or seven years ago. And I mean, it's just been unbelievable. So focus on land, industrial land sounds like the... I mean that's 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 currently yeah that's currently the flavor right I mean obviously we're lo- we're looking we're looking backwards at what has already happened so of course and if you were to look five years forward Thomas <laughs> your crystal yeah, ball of course if I had that power we would not be having an interview with me as an appraiser <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be you know calling my sky palace and uh, we'd have Warren Buffett on speed <laughs> how many times and and now we're going to get to the the good questions here how many times have you run into a situation where a guy pays a million dollars for a property, whether it be you know a new construction piece of you know property that could be two or three years out and the market's changed, or someone just literally wrote the offer last week at a million, and you got to go deliver the five hundred thousand dollar appraisal. <laughs> yeah, I mean it. It absolutely happens. It's never a fun conversation, but the way that I view what I'm doing is like this: I don't ever feel comfortable writing something down or being part of an engagement that is delivering information to somebody who's relying on it if I don't think it's true. I just don't do it. Even in in a report where the appraised value might be similar to the contract, I mean, you might have to be clear in that report that, listen, this is absolutely a function of a red hot market it's an extremely tight market. This is absolute top of the range. It's reasonable, but you are still giving clarity and kind of a genuine opinion of exactly how far someone is stretching. In terms of actually giving bad news, it doesn't happen that often. And perhaps that's a function of the quality of clients that we have in my office. But I would say once every couple of months, you're giving someone news that they don't want to hear. And sometimes people don't take it very well. And sometimes they're actually pretty appreciative that you're that you're maybe giving them grounds to kind of rethink what could have been a very bad decision. I think it's it's important to say that most lenders will lend on the contract price and or the appraisal, the lesser of the two. So, right. so sometimes people get frustrated where maybe they've got this offer for 1.5 million, the appraisal comes back for 1.2, and the lender says, okay, we're going to give you a 75% loan to value on the 1.2. You as the buyer got to come up with the other 300,000 if you want to continue forward with the contract. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's important that people understand that because it's not kind of like, oh, the appraisal came in at X, my contract says Y, I'm okay. The bank will look at the lesser of the two usually to make their decision on how they're going to, what they're going to lend to and how much they're going to lend. So the appraisal is a very key and can sometimes be the most important part of the due diligence phase and the financing process. You know, and that's why subject-free offers can be very dangerous, particularly where people are kind of financially committed to a deal on the assumption that everything is going to work out. And, you know, the saying about assumptions are all uh, wonderful until they're wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So I know it's so challenging, and and you probably know this more than I do, Corey, on the brokerage side, but in a hot market that is moving quickly, I mean, those due diligence periods that you normally want to see 30 days, 45 days, 60 days, that actually might mean the difference between an offer that is competitive and not. So it's it's a difficult job to kind of balance protecting the people in the deal from making the wrong decision and getting the deal done. So it's not easy when the market is moving quickly. You know, this maybe is a question for both you, Thomas and Corey, but if I'm thinking as a a newbie in the commercial space, I'm just thinking about wild differentials 
in, say, agreed upon purchase price and the appraised price. I know how that works on the residential side, but the process of establishing value seems so much more complicated here. Um, how as a, as a newcomer to the area of commercial real estate, do you establish value? Is that basically just working with the broker or, or how, how does that work? So essentially, you know, we don't find most of the information on an MLS board, which most residential appraisals are kind of working off of. It's it's very straightforward. It's very transparent. And basically, you know, pretty much every residential property that sells is, you know, invariably on MLS right. or sold through MLS. On commercial, you really have a much lower participation rate, if you will in terms of properties that are selling, even if they're marketed by a commercial broker, they don't necessarily appear on the commercial board. However, we do subscribe to a number of specialized databases that track commercial sales exclusively. So they are essentially companies that are working from land title registration they have their own researchers, and all they do is essentially compile sales and market information, and that is their business. Mm-hmm. So we subscribe to those to those databases, and uh, they're pretty they're pretty common in in the market here. And most you know firms that are active in commercial appraisal will all have, will all have access to those databases. And in addition to that, a commercial appraisal is almost always going to involve some element of primary research. So that's either you know calling brokers that you know, trying to find historical information that you have internally in your databases, and the scope of market evidence that you are presenting in a particular report might actually come from a variety of sources. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the main difference between a commercial appraisal and a residential appraisal, which is usually you know three, four, five MLS sales, then you're done. Well, I think, Thomas, I think you hit something, you know, a very key point there that in the residential world, there's sort of one system to list, one system to get your data. In commercial, there's a lot of off-market transactions. And I think one thing people don't understand is the appraisers are on the front lines of this data that's getting shared for appraisal processes. And having a, a really good appraiser that knows what's going on and has access to that type of information is key in your decision-making process. And even when you're looking to acquire property and stuff like that, having these relationships help us build market value and find out what's trading and for how much when we're trying to price property, even trying to acquire property off market. Sorry, Thomas, one thing that I'm just thinking of here as a potential client to either William Wright or Campbell and Pound is... You know, the complexity of the analysis, but also the ability to gather the data seems so involved that it seems almost impossible to establish value without a good broker and a good appraiser. Am I am I wrong on that? Like, it seems very hard to follow this market uh, if you're not actively uh, or professionally involved, really. Yeah. Well, I, I think for sure your, your first contact as a as a potential investor or purchaser is with an experienced commercial broker like Corey, who absolutely knows everything about a particular asset that he is introducing his buyer to. That that for sure is your first step. I mean, to to enter into a transaction completely blind or to call your, you know, the local realtor who, you know, might be wonderful at their at their wheelhouse in terms of single family homes and expect that they have a skill set that translates into, you know, a 40 or 50,000 square foot industrial building. That is usually a pretty risky proposition. And certainly I would not recommend that. Or at the very least, you should try to involve at least two people. If one of them is, you know, your wife or your, uh, your significant other who happens to be a realtor, you still need somebody like Corey to kind of come in and help you with the deal absolutely before you before you do anything. Corey wants to wrap it up now on that note. Well, I, I don't think, can, can, can we leave on a better note than that? <laughs> we do have our, our, our six, six pack. Thomas, we got six lighthearted questions for you. So our, our listeners can get to know you a little bit better outside of the workplace there. Do you got a couple more minutes to hang out with us? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The six-pack is powered by our good friends over at Red Point Law. Red Point Law, Corey, Tim, Falco, Scott, and the team, these are great people with a wealth of experience when it comes to commercial closings and private lending. And I just want to say, Corey, not to cut you off, they have a perfect five-star review on Google. 
So for all your commercial legal needs, visit them at redpointlaw.ca with offices in Vancouver and now open in downtown Kelowna. All right, Thomas, we got six ones. We'll let, we'll let Matt lead it off here. Well, I'm excited about this one. Favorite movie or TV show? I've only seen it uh, 15 or 20 times, so I'm due to watch it again. But one of my favorite movies has to be Glengarry Glen Ross. Oh. Always be closing the ABCs. <laughs> Matt, Matt, Matt's pointing at this sheet you filled out before you came on here we, with a favorite TV show we, we, by chance that might be on Amazon no, Prime. I've, I've, I've heard you. I've heard you speak about that before, and you know, I I woke up from a dream and and wondered, like, do I live on a ranch? And is Kevin Costner my father? <laughs> The, the backstory of this is for people who haven't heard previous podcasts is Adam and Matt on their show made a recommendation about this great real estate show <laughs> called Yellowstone. So I rushed and I bought the app and I'm like, okay, I, I put 80 bucks in Jeff Bezos pocket. I'm, I'm sitting down watching Yellowstone. This is a great real estate show. And then the very next week, Adam makes a retraction that maybe after the pilot, it wasn't technically a real estate show. And it's an ongoing joke around here is I can't get into it, but these two are just are I, I feel like through. I've had, uh, I, at certain points, I felt it was like, you know, the young and the restless, but I'm back on. I'm full, full bore every night now. I'm almost done. Oh, geez. Um, man. Oh, I, so you're, you're lucky. I mean, I have to start pacing myself. I'm like, I can't, I can't queue up with this greedy second episode that I'm going to fall asleep halfway through. I mean, it's not wasted, right? Now that, Matt has not been... soap opera for grown men. Matt, Matt has, hasn't been as excited as pointing at that sheet, seeing the word Yellowstone since we started this whole thing. All right, next, next question for you. Favorite vacation spot? Favorite vacation spot? I, I would say that I... I like places that don't have very good cell phone signals and definitely don't have Wi-Fi. Um, in two weeks, I'm hoping to go do some fishing in uh, Winter Harbor in the northwest part of Vancouver Island. So, oh, nice! That would be uh, that would be my current oh, favorite, man. which I'm looking forward to. Well, if you're looking for places that don't have very good cell phone reception. If you just get Kudo, which I have, I have no cell phone reception anywhere. So you could be anywhere in the city. I was and surprised. feel the same way. Corey's always about to go into an underground. <laughs> I could be sitting downtown walking along Robson and my phone just cuts out midday. <laughs> no reason just to thank you very much for your business. <laughs> uh, all right, I'm fine. probably going to get sued by Kudo now. <laughs> Uh, favorite band or song, Thomas? Uh, if you saw my Spotify playlist, you would be scratching your head, probably thinking, how in the world do you have so many unrelated bands and songs in one playlist, you idiot? <laughs> Split them up into separate playlists. But uh, I'll say today is Friday, so maybe uh, some Creedence Clearwater Revival with a, oh. with a side order of uh, Paul Simon and maybe some uh, Reverend Al Green to follow Wow, wow that's, that's a pretty good eclectic mix there. It's my favorite question that Corey's come up with for this uh, six-pack. I love that. That's a great answer. You're almost the first person that's been on this podcast that hasn't <laughs> cited 90s gangster rap. So that's yeah. kind of a nice... Yeah, uh, if, you, if you were to drop Coolio in that mix there or Skilo or something like that, you would just fit in with the previous guests. Yeah, yeah well, once you get to my age and your hair is gray, certain things you... Well, I I was I was listening by accident on my radio to the classic rock station and one of the bands came on that I listened to in high school. I mean, I'm I'm coming to the realization that that music that I thought was cool is now classic rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Favorite quote or words to live by? I'll have to say one that I uh that I do believe in quite quite genuinely and that's uh, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you golden rule yeah a good, a good one for sure uh book you'd recommend anyone listening a book the last book that i finished that was that was really interesting and not even remotely related to business or real estate is uh is called three day road by joseph boyden and it's uh, a fiction book based 
on the experiences of, uh, or inspired by the experiences of uh, Francis Pegamagabo, and I hope I'm saying that correct. And Francis was, or uh, still is, the most highly decorated Indigenous uh, person from the Canadian Armed Forces. And it's basically kind of a fictional account based on his life about his trials in the First World War as a sniper. Wow. Wow. That's, 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 I'll tell you right now, I feel really stupid. I'm listening to Scar Tissue about Anthony Kiedis, the lead singer of Chili Peppers. I'm reading his biography right now. So. That, that sounds, that is, one question for you, would a child enjoy that? Like a 10, 12, 14 year old? Would it, would it work? Uh, you know, they, they might. I mean, I, I got to tell you, as a, as a kid, I was never allowed to watch anything inappropriate on television. But for some reason, I got the green light to read uh the 10 novel masterwork of L. Ron Hubbard, which is probably a million times more of a mind job than anything you're ever going to see on TV. So um, Matt was asking that question because that's about my reading level. Was so Matt was say, asking to see if Can I something. read it out loud to Corey? <laughs> 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 you don't see, but before and so. after the before and after the podcast, yeah. I sit on the carpet with my legs crossed <laughs> and Matt reads the book to me yeah. one page at a time. Last one, one page, one page at a one time. One page at a time, and right now we're just sort of getting through. We're in the Robert Munch book where the kids got to go to the bathroom, but the snow suit's still on. So we're getting there. Last question for you: piece of advice you would give our listeners, maybe who are entering the commercial real estate market for the first time? I think this one is pretty easy, and especially given the price point in the market that we are living in, for most people who are entering into a seven-figure, eight-figure financial decision, getting tripped up over uh, due diligence or trying to cut corners and save yourself a few thousand dollars is going to wind up being a very, very poor strategy in the long term for most people. Yeah, no, I, I can't agree with you more. And that's very consistent to what a lot of people said on other episodes is just making sure that you, you A, have the right team in place and B, make sure when you engage the right team to get the right information. Because that little Absolutely. bit that you're cutting corners or trying to save 1200 bucks here, 1500 bucks there when you're buying properties in the millions of dollars will come back to haunt you for a long time and could be very, very costly. Yeah, one, one, mis- one mistake or one, one small oversight and you can, you can try to cut corners for the rest of your life and you'll never get back to even. Right, right. How, Thomas, uh, can people find out more about what you're doing and more about Campbell and Pound uh, Commercial? Sure. I mean, uh, firstly, if people are interested just in, in learning more about, about appraisal and, and the, the business itself, I, I always recommend to go to the Appraisal Institute of Canada website, which is aicanada.ca. And if they want to speak to uh, me directly, they can always call me 604-612-4015 or send me an email to thomas at campbellpound.com. That's amazing. I've I've had the luxury of working with Thomas for years and years and years with clients, and he's always done such a great job and pulled through. And the one thing I will say with Thomas is he always hits his deadlines. And when you're in due diligence phase and you're down to that last day and reports are coming in and the bank's yelling at us and there's we won't get an extension, Thomas always pulls through. So I appreciate it. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for your time, Thomas. Thanks so much for joining us today, Thomas. We really appreciate it. Take care. You're very welcome. Take care. There you have it, folks, our interview with Thomas Wykowski of Campbell and Pound Commercial Appraisals. Phenomenal. I love talks with guys like that where it's just day in, day out. He's seeing mistakes people are making. He's yeah. seeing great opportunities, great buys people are making. It's almost like he's like an anthropologist <laughs> watching the world of commercial real estate. But a lot of insight gained there, uh, both on the investment side, but also the due diligence side. Yeah, no, a lot of people think they just, they write an offer and the appraisal just comes in and it's all good to go, but they don't realize how much goes into that appraisal. And obviously from a bank's perspective, what that appraisal is for. Right. So you got to make sure that you're writing, hopefully, offers at fair market value and you're not getting into those situations where the bad news comes that you just paid double from what an appraiser thinks it's worth. <laughs> well, you know what? I don't want to slander anyone and I, I definitely know that Thomas doesn't, but talk about a more involved process oh, in, in yeah. terms of like a residential appraisal versus yeah. some of these commercial appraisals. Like, well, in- you, find, you find sometimes when you get your first time buyer in or maybe a syndicate that's created of investors where they want to go buy and they buy like say a building 
for three or four million dollars. It's multi-tenanted. It's a piece of fee simple land. And the appraisal guy says, okay, I'll I'll get the report back to you in two or three weeks. Right. And they're under the assumption, similar to say a condo, well, if 101 sells for this and 202 sells for this, then hypothetically 303 is worth this. Right. They don't realize how many different methods and how many things have to go into that appraisal, hence the cost and hence the timelines. Right. Right. No, it was a great conversation. The other thing I want to bring up quickly, one, I don't know if you have paid attention to the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, but we liked your question so much about favorite song that we actually stole it. Well, it's funny uh, you say that because I, I did notice that and my my lawyer will be reaching out to you guys to talk to you further about that. <laughs> it's already trademarked. <laughs> <laughs> but such a great question. The other funny thing about Thomas was huge Yellowstone fan. And I mean, I feel like I've now, I've wavered publicly so much on this show. I have now finished it. It's pretty good. It yeah. is. It's pretty great. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm almost thinking if I want to keep this job here, I got to sort of pull my socks up and get into this thing here. So I, I'll, I'll do my part. I'll do my part here before August. There will be a quiz. But anyway, Corey, we do have Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. This is where the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast lives. We have the transcription. If you want to go back and kind of bring a highlighter, definitely head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also have the live wire where there is an industrial Project, yep. VIP, yep. Access VIP access on the live wire right now in Langford. Incredible, incredible story. That's going to be next week's yep, we episode. Have, we so. have Connor Braid, who's our managing broker out of Victoria, to come on and talk all about the industrial markets in Greater Victoria, which is, has about a sub 1% vacancy rate. Could be the best investment opportunity in North America. I feel like we've got a title. Who knows? I feel like we've got a title. <laughs> if that doesn't make you want to download the next episode, I don't know what does. <laughs> right on. Well, I guess before we go, Corey, how can people find out more about what you guys are doing over at William Wright? People can visit us on our website at williamwright.ca. They're always welcome to email me, Corey, at williamwright.ca, or they can always reach us on our Vancouver office, 604-428-5255. Whether you're leasing, looking to purchase or sell your commercial real estate, please reach out. We'll find a broker uh, that best suits your asset uh, in the best marketplace and we'll put you in touch sounds good well enjoy the week everyone and uh, stay cool subscribe today